from South Bend, Indiana, I'm Jacob Titus. Welcome to More People. More People is a new article and podcast series written by Joe Molner and published on West SB that explores how South Bend lost 50,000 people in 50 years. On each episode, I'll be joined by Joe and my South Bend on Purpose co-host, Dustin Mix, to discuss the latest article in the series, how it was received online, and what's coming up next. Welcome to episode three of More People. I am Jacob Titus, and I am joined with I am joined by Dustin Mix and Joe Molnar, per usual. Joe, you want to tell us about the article that we're going to talk about today? Sure. Um, so this is uh, the third article, full article in the series. Um, it's titled "More People: The Worst Decade in South Bend History." Um, so this where we left off at the end of article two was in the year 2000 on our little timeline we started going on and in 2000 the city throughout the 90s had seen quite an uptick actually Uh, we gained population we gained households the amount of vacancies in the city fell Um, all those were things that had never that hadn't happened um, for a long time especially the vacancies Um, so that's where the 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 article kind of begins is it it be it starts with me telling the story of like growing up in the 90s in South Bend you know we had all been told like the city had come on really hard times you know we we saw the old factories that were gone or abandoned I should say um you know we were told that this place used to build cars this place used to build brakes this place used to build watches and now we don't do any of that so the 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 feel growing up in South Bend was that the decline had come and gone. Um, And I I mentioned that, you know, in saying that downtown was significantly worse off than it had been. It it was no longer a shopping destination. But if you look back on the housing data, and if if we're only talking about population, you know, the 90s were a real bright spot for South Bend. Um, Like I had said, we had been gaining population, gaining households. And our neighbor, our neighborhoods where a lot of these factories were, were still very much largely intact, Um, which is, I think, something that looking back now upon, you can notice where, yeah, okay, the factory is empty, um, but most neighborhoods still had most of their houses, um, which is Hmm. what started to change in this decade that we really highlight here. Yeah. And you start the article with this interesting quote from Mayor Lloyd M. Allen uh, from January 1972. I want to read it and then uh, get some of your thoughts on it. It says, those who need government services the most, the poor, the elderly, those lacking job skills, will continue living in our city. Those who can afford to take care of themselves, provide the services and provide the tax base to support municipal services, will continue moving out of the city. That must stop. It's the big problem we face in the next decade. And again, that was Mayor Lloyd Allen in January 1972. Joe, what brought you to this quote? Yeah, so I... How'd you find it? Yeah, so I've been digging through basically every 
uh, South Bend Tribune article on the census from the past like half century <laughs> that I can find. Mm. Um, and I found this. It was actually in a he was quoted. This was from the 1972, you know, like you said, but it was actually reprinted then in the 90s. Um, but I the reason I was drawn to it is because it kind of succinctly said why population decline was bad and the type of population decline South Bend was seeing. Um, interestingly enough, in the 70s, as our previous articles have talked about, a lot of that decline was actually just because households were getting smaller. But he was right mm. when he said the people who can can leave will leave and they were going out to the suburbs. They were typically replaced by people of lower income and lower means in the same house. Um, and then with smaller households. So he, he did have it right that the, our suburbs were really growing. Um, you know, this is right in the seventies and eighties and nineties. That's when Granger started to take off as an entity that kind of became the premier suburb, you know, Mishawaka was, was doing a, you know, commendable job growing their city by really pushing suburbanization and huge apartment complexes on the periphery. Um, mm. so the, the quote kind of sums up cities, especially your primary city of your, you know, county and your region provide services to everybody. You know, this is where the parks are that it doesn't cost any money to be here. You can just, you know, be in a park and spend a day without, you know, spending a mm. dime. Um, this is where the homeless shelter is. This is where all those services that, you know, people depend on public transportation. You know, if you don't have a car or at least a reliable car and you rely on public transportation, well, chances are you're going to try to stay in the city because that's where still mm -hmm. most of the jobs are. So what happened, you know, what, what what Mayor Allen and I should say, so Mayor Allen was the last Republican mayor that the city had. Um, he this quote by him is actually the month that he stopped being mayor. So he had served eight years. And then since that, mm -hmm. we've had all Democratic mayors. So he, you know, the Republican, at least the last Republican that we had, um, pointed that our decline was coming from the people of wealth leaving South Bend. Hmm. That's a that's an interesting fact, because, I mean, can you imagine today like that? Uh, no. Can you imagine a Republican candidate for mayor saying anything like that today? No. I mean, our previous, you know, Republican candidates over the past, you know, couple cycles, I don't think would ever say something so derogatory. The mo uh, yeah, I mean, the mo our most recent one was doing fundraisers. Uh, in Granger. In Granger. Yeah. yeah, they. I think they, and there, I would bet if you looked at a lot of the most recent, you know, Republican donors in the area, they, they weren't coming from South Bend, you know, it was... That's that's kind of the issue that the last article, you know, touched on a little bit more is, you know, the suburbanization part of the county. Well, these people still have a very much an a South Bend identity. They they relate to the city. They all they usually work in the city or at least come to the city frequently, you know, to go to South Bend Cubs games or to go yeah. to the local courthouse. So they identify with South Bend, but they're not living in the city Um and it's it's kind of a dual identity they then have to have where they think they should have a say in South Bend politics and South Bend governance, but they don't get that through their vote. So they, you know, try to go through other means usually. Mm. Yeah. I think this is one of the more interesting articles in the series so far for me because it touches on part of my life. 
And I, I was just noticing here, I, I had pulled up the article because I love how you start it, kind of talking about the feeling that the collapse had come and gone already. And I, I actually just noticed there's a, there's a, a footnote there that says that that's my wording, yeah, uh, so which <laughs> makes a lot of sense because I pulled it up to say that like, when I started reading the article, I was like, man, that is exactly how I feel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, <it's cool. laughs> and so, but I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that have that feeling and even after reading this and reading all the data, like it's still hard to, I feel like it's going to take me a long time to get that out of my mind. This yeah, and I, feeling that you start with saying that like in grow, you say growing up in South Bend during the nineties and the early two thousands, I always had the feeling that the collapse had come and gone and that the city was just now finding its footing in a post Studebaker world that like, I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard because this and it's something this article kind of touches on is that like population decline and economic decline are not the same. Um, they don't always go hand in hand and even more so economic decline for who, you know, if, you know, that, that, that's part of it too is okay. There's still a lot of wealth in this St. Joe County. It's, you know, there, we have a lot of legacy wealth here still. Um, but, but in other, you know, respects the year 2000. So when I was eight, nine years old, um, we had more households than ever before and ever you know, in the city's history. You know, we almost had 43,000 mm. households, which was about 2000 more than we had in 1960 when we talk about, you know, Studebaker and, and, you know, yeah. industrial. so in some respects, like, you know, South Bend was bigger than ever before. in these things, the reason the population was smaller is because those households had less people um, and that the growth was very minimal especially compared, you know, the growth in households was very minimal compared to what it was in the first half of the 20th century. And that was largely because the most of the growth was happening outside the city. Um, but in 2000, you know, the city had annexed some land on the South side and it was seeing probably the first in the nineties was when you were seeing the first reinvestments in inner neighborhoods. Um, so there's quite a few like South Bend heritage projects from the nineties where you, you probably saw the first construction, like new construction in those neighborhoods at that mm -hmm. time. And like I said, vacancies actually went down, um, in the nineties, which was kind of, uh, which is very novel. You know, they had always gone up. Um, yeah. so you were seeing not only, you know, South Bend was growing because it was annexing suburban type housing, but it was also growing because its inner cities had stopped losing households in the nineties. Hmm. Um, and it, do you, do you have a sense of like wh why that was? Well, there's probably a lot of things that were going well in the nineties. For one, the nineties were the highest year of immigration um, from South and Central America that this, the country mm. saw um, it, it kind of flatlined in the mid 2000s with the recession. Um, so we saw a huge growth in Hispanic population in South Bend at that time. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it is you, some of these West side neighborhoods that we, we thought were, were getting worse. were actually growing in people because yeah, the households maybe have declined a bit, but there were, you know, immigrant families had more children. Um, so that's one reason for the population kind of growth. Our, our 
one of the reasons the numbers didn't fall was because the 90s was the first time that the population per household didn't fall. It stayed flat. Mm-hmm. So that meant when you had a growth in households, you automatically had a growth in population. So we finally had weathered that huge yeah. decline in the fa- fact that families were getting smaller in the 90s. That was part of it. Um, and it was kind of the 90s were the bottom for a lot of in a lot of ways for the city, like downtown. You can look at photos in the 90s of downtown and it's just all gone. You know, the city did a lot in the 90s to finally slowly start rebuilding downtown, um, like the Leighton Garage, where which has, uh, you know, in the Leighton Hall complex, which has shops and stores and it has, you know, medical facilities and, um, right. you know, a gym that was that was a parking lot. in the in the early 90s, you know, that, that yeah. wasn't built to 2000. Yeah. So, like, imagine if those photos are hard to, like, get my mind around when, like, that wasn't there yeah i mean it's it's you know downtown today is still you know we're we're super excited every time a a new building fills an old parking lot but like yeah we've we fell really far but we're not at the bottom anymore you know we've and that that bottom was probably the 90s um that was probably the 90s were probably when there was the most abandoned factories um because the city started cleaning those up you know i think it's ignition or is innovation? I can never get the two right. Innovation. Ign- ignition is yeah. <laughs> innovation is uh, the one right Notre Dame. Okay, yeah. Ignition was where you know when I was a kid, I would play in the old Studebaker factories right north of Rum Village. Um, yeah. The city in the nine, starting in the nineties and early two thousands, started to knock all those down, and and you right. know, which I think was a net good, you know. Um, because now we're seeing new construction on them and jobs there again. So I think the nineties were interesting in that way is kind of was the bottom. What we thought was, was the bottom. Um, and they were starting to see some life. The nineties are when urban living started to become an idea. You know, now it's kind of cliche, like, Oh yeah, millennials like to live in cities, but the nineties were when that idea first started germinating. Um, Mm -hmm. so for a lot of different reasons, the nineties saw growth, um, that had been unseen before. Um, and, and broadly it was like one of our, I think it was up until last year, like the largest like economic spa- expansion yeah. more broadly in, in U S history. Definitely. So like the economy was broadly good. And yeah, I mean yeah. the nineties had, you know, a very good economy um, where you were seeing actually real growth too, and, and household income and uh, very low unemployment and that, you know, the United States is economy dictates a lot of what, happens in south bend you know to in big general terms um so really just there were a lot of positive forces moving that that was pushing south Bend up in the 90s um and that all came to a terrible crashing halt in the 2000s yeah and i think you're 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 talking about the buildings that had been torn down and like the parking lots and just empty land in downtown and the abandoned factories like those I think that is really helpful in pointing to the feeling that the decline was over in 2000 that like so often it's a lot harder to count the number of people that are surrounding us like in our neighborhood. Even now it's like if it's increasing, it's kind of hard to gauge that sometimes, but it's really easy to go downtown and see this gaping hole uh, in the middle of the city or drive past an abandoned yeah. factory and kind of take that as the icon for decline. Well, in the nineties were only 30 years removed from Studebaker and 
20 to 10 years removed from a lot of other the companies you know like juries mm-hmm. produce beer till 72 you know a lot of companies hung on till the 70s you know i think singer was around until the 70s i, I could have that wrong but you know there was a lot of a lot of the, the econ- so it was a lot of it was really fresh in people's minds you know people who worked at yeah. these companies you know if you're 20 and you started you know in 1965 at Drury's. Well, for your first, you know, six, seven, eight years of employment, you worked at a company that's gone now and there's a big hulking factory there Um, Mm. where today, you know, that's that's it's it's it keeps getting further and further removed from common memory of what the city was like. So in the night, so as a kid and as someone growing up at that time, like my dad, you know, was in prime employment in the 90s. You know, he was in his, his 40s and 30s and, you know, very much like the prime working person. He grew up in a completely different world for a job market than by the 90s he had to fight in. Um, right. You know, he and his whole life was different in that part. Like he like I think I said last <laughs> time, like Our Lady of Hungary had 500 students when he was a kid. But then when just one generation removed when I was a kid, it had 100 um wow so it you know there's all around you there are reminders i remember driving down ewing and my dad would tell me hey that's where i used to go go karting because there was a go karting track where the right near where the baseball park is um off ewing um really yeah really? like all these cool things that south bend had you know i think you had talked about storyland zoo you know when did that close yeah. um was that the 90s I don't remember. I can find it. Yeah. So like there was all so many like painful reminders of how things had gotten worse in South Bend that by the 90s, you would thought like, oh, it has to be over. Right. Like we've lost everything. Like what else is there to lose? And in some ways that wasn't true because, like I said, mm-hmm. the neighborhoods still largely had a lot of housing. I in the article, um, I post photos of of satellite images from 1998 and from 2015 and they had in 98 there were fully functional neighborhoods still yeah there's there's a couple scattered vacancies and empty lots that you can see um but you know in in no way were these neighborhoods you know what they look like today you know these were all functional neighborhoods still right and i think right you know, I, I mentioned in the piece, like I would ride my bike through the Southeast and I never remember like riding my bike down a block with no houses, you know, that yeah. they, you know, they were poor houses. Like, I'm not saying that these people were pro, you know, cause you know, the economic issues had happened, um, but they were all occupied and there were people living there and, you know, living in the city still, it was just that they had, you know, low economic, you know, outlooks. Um, but it wasn't like that right. the city was emptied out. Right. Yeah, it's real they're really remarkable images for anybody who hasn't seen them the the second grouping of them are from the near west side. And the top right uh block in there, I'm looking at it right now and I can count 10 houses in a row that are like next to each other, no open yeah. land in between them. And then and that's in 1998. And then in 2015 there are 3 yeah. out of those 10 left. Yeah. And what's really crazy is I, I could have cheated. I, I used 2015 because um, I thought that would kind of show like this 10 ish year period we're talking about of the 2000s and like the consequences mm-hmm. of the Great Recession and housing crash. Like that would kind of show that. But like I could have used 2019 image, which 
even more houses are gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but I, I wanted to stay honest and, and, and really we're talking about, you know, 2000 ish to, you know, 2012, 2013 ish here um, where it, it was just a terrible decade for the city. Yeah. Right. The, the, that's what like reading it for me was, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, just the numbers are so drastic you know, like yeah. the, the household like numbers. Like this vacant house and the vacant houses chart. Uh, yeah. Story. I mean, all like all of them, the vacant houses, the just pure number of households. Like it almost looks like a mistake to to see three decades of actually gaining households somewhere in the, you know, four decades of somewhere in the hundreds. And then all of a sudden you lose 3,000. Um, it's just, it's so shocking to see. Yeah, it's, and I, don't i i don't think most people think that way at all um i think it's not something that they they thought the 2000s were bad but they thought that everything has been bad since studebaker closed like that's kind of mm-hmm. the thought um but it was a completely different type of pain that the city went through um you know i i mentioned not during the great depression not during World War II, not when Studebaker closed, not when Urban Rule happened. We always gained households until the 2000s. Yeah, the the vacant houses in South Bend chart, it's the first chart that uh, you'll come to in the story, is uh, it's stark. The third column is the change, fr- change in vacant houses from the previous decade. And in 2000, the 2000 census, the change is minus 56. So we had less vacant houses than the decade prior. And then in 20, the 2010 census, it was 3,123. So it went from, yeah, minus 56 to over 3,000 yeah. in one decade. And I, I think I say, so it took, us, um, it took us 30 years to basically double our vacant housing from 1960 to 1990. Um, you know, so 30 years. And then once we had doubled it, it kind of leveled out. And like you said, we we lost 56 vacant houses, you know, like didn't lose. We gained, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, 56 more houses in that way. But then in one decade, it doubled again. So we gained a whole nother 3000. You know, we gained more than we had from the 60s through the 90s in just 10 years. And if you if you think about it, OK, 10 years, that means every year there was over 300 houses and a, and you know mostly houses becoming vacant that had had mm-hmm. people in them the year before like 300 right. houses every yeah. year for 10 years and i'm sure some years were worse than other like some years it might have been like 700 houses um right and so right. i yeah i get into kind of why that happened um and there's a lot here like I'm trying to re- explain the financial crash and the great recession in like a couple paragraphs. Um, <laughs> if, if you want to know why this happened, you have to know how the great recession started and then why it was so bad. And I can't do that justice in a, you know, in an article like this. So please, if you really want to know why, like go read some great books on this uh, topic that I've quoted in the piece and that put at the sources, you know, at the bottom. Um, but largely the great recession started because of a housing crash um, and, and really quickly, basically throughout the 90s um, and then the early 2000s, the housing industry kind of went crazy and housing prices everywhere started rising off of speculation. Um, it became banks 
believed mortgages were super safe because who doesn't pay their mortgage if they can't? So they thought mortgages were the easiest money to make. So they gave them out like candy to people. They gave people mortgages they couldn't afford by any means. They came up with really slimy ways to get people to get into mortgages. So something called adjusted rate mortgage um, became a standard practice where you would sign on for a mortgage and your interest was only 3%, but every year it went up. And so at the beginning, you could make your monthly payment because it was, you know, easy. But then a couple of years in, your monthly payment's gone up a couple hundred dollars and your house hasn't changed and your income probably hasn't changed. Um, and all this speculation, you know, grew uh, the price of housing. So people got stuck with these really expensive mortgages for houses that in reality, the market probably shouldn't have sold for that. Well, that right. that, you know, for a lot of reasons that went bust in 2006, 2007, and you don't really need to know why it went bust, but you'd have to understand that it did bust. Um, and that started kind of like a snowball rolling downhill that kept picking up speed and picking up mass. So the houses went bust. Um, and what that meant was so if I'm a person and I bought a house just a couple of years earlier for like fifty thousand dollars out, you know, and then near Northwest and the housing crisis hits and all of a sudden my house is only worth $20,000. Like I couldn't sell it for more than $20,000. Well, that's crazy because I'm paying as if it was a $50,000 house still. So I'm paying way more than I should be for a house and I can't sell it because then I'd owe 30 grand to the bank still. And then the unemployment rate skyrockets because the great recession gets worse off of this huge foreclosure crisis. So I have to foreclose on my house because I can't make the payments and the bank takes it. Well, the bank takes it and they put it immediately on the market. Well, that further pushes housing prices down and it becomes mm -hmm. this vicious cycle where people they're in houses that they couldn't afford already. And that now are no longer worth what they paid for. Um, and it leads to people getting foreclosed on and they're and leaving their houses. And that's how you get 3000 vacant houses in a decade is you make a bubble, it popped, the people standing up trying to hold the pieces together can't do it anymore, and then they lose their job, or they have a job, but they haven't got a raise in eight years, and they can't make their payments, so the bank takes the house, and the bank doesn't do anything with it, somebody breaks in, it burns down, there's so many negative consequences to a, you know, a vacant home for a long, long time on a street, and why this was so bad to South Bend compared to say other cities was South Bend had a lot of marginal housing in the nineties. Like I said, these neighborhoods were still intact and there was still a functioning housing market around them. But again, they were like $50,000, $40,000, $60,000 houses. Well, what happens when the whole country, all houses are within a couple months worth half what they were? Well, out, you know, in a prosperous area, if a house was worth 400,000 and now it's worth 200,000, well, that, that sucks for that person, but like the house still has a lot of value and someone will buy it and reinvest in it. But what happens when you had a 50,000 hour house and now it's worth 25? Well, it's, it's not what people think. Cause right now we have almost the opposite problem where housing is too expensive in a lot of cities, but like cheap, cheap, cheap housing is not good for your city. Because if a house is only worth, say, 10 grand on the market, a bank won't give anyone loans for that, for you to own it, for one. 
And two, it makes no sense putting a $10,000 roof on a $10,000 house because you're not going to get that money back. You know, a roof is a roof, no matter if your house worth $10,000, $100,000 or $5 million, like a roof costs money. And why make that investment on a house that it does not even worth that investment? You're not going to get that money back unless you're one of those people who just really love your neighborhood and your home and you're not going to leave. Um, but from a purely financial sense, these houses got so cheap because they were already on the lowest end of the spectrum that they became literally worth nothing and they were a cost to own. So what South Bend saw was we saw um, out of town LLCs buy these places up where the city couldn't even track them because they hid behind legal language and they just would hold the property because they hope they bought it for a dollar on tax sale and they thought, Hey, maybe in 10 years I can sell it for $500. Well, I'm not going to mow my lawn. You know, they're in California. They're not mowing their lawn. So what we, we had a huge rash of vacant and abandoned houses start in the two thousands where you didn't see that as a problem before. So like, when mm. um you know when the 60s and 70s A's were happening like we didn't have we like abandoned houses were an issue that the city like we did have the slowly rising vacancies like that was like a problem the city had, had to address but it wasn't nearly the the titanic number one like it was the number one issue in the 2011 mayoral race like i went back and looked at the mm. coverage and they had they had two full debates just on vacant and abandoned housing Wow. Um, like it was, it's so it was hard to think of that because of the way, I mean, because of the way that kind of a thousand, thousand homes and all the vacant housing issues got talked about during the last year, during the presidential campaign. Yeah. It's so hard to right. think about that. Like, and there have been people in the last couple of years saying like, this was a big, this was a big issue that really needed something to be done about it. Yeah. And I, I, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I touch a little bit on it in the piece because the reason Mayor P and that the city thought that we needed a program like a thousand house in a thousand days was because the two thousands were so terrible. Um, mm -hmm. We would not have needed that program in 1998 or even 2000, you know, and when, when Mayor Pete ran for president and this was kind of one of the signature issues that, his opponents focused on like you tore down a lot of homes and poor neighborhoods. They all like, even the people who tried to explain why it was needed always pointed back to like, well, South Bend had Studebaker and then they lost 30,000 people. It's like, it's, it, these weren't homes that sat for 40 years. They were homes that sat, had sat mm -hmm. for five years. Um, mm. and that had now holes in the roof and, you know, they weren't maintained for five years, so they were unusable. And I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from like, was a thousand homes, a thousand days, you know, a good program or was it, um, you know, done the most equitable way? You know, those are bigger discussions people can have, you know, um, and, and dig into, but it, it was an issue and the public was demanding something of the city because look at those, look at those images from those neighborhoods. Imagine yeah. if instead of those vacant lots you see now, those were all homes that were vacant. So imagine mm -hmm. you're one of the remaining people and five years ago you had 10 neighbors and now you have one neighbor on your street and there's, but the houses are all still there and they're all falling apart and there's absolutely no way someone's going to rehab these homes because it doesn't make financial sense to do so. So they were demanding the city fix it. Um, you know, and you can say 
the city did it the wrong way or whatever, but like there was a problem and that problem came Mm. from the housing crisis. It didn't come from the fact that Studebaker closed in the sixties. Like we're way past this point where that's the driving factor for why we have vacant housing in South Bend. Joe, I don't remember that argument being made. Um, That kind of delineation of why it was needed being made back when thousand homes when like when that was getting started and that was being discussed like you were saying in that the 2011 mayoral campaign am i just do i have bad memory or i wasn't no, paying attention I, there I think, or, or was that true? and a and thousand houses thousand days came out of when pete got into office uh, mayor Buttigieg, judge he this was like the number one issue that like the city was talking about like go back and read the mm-hmm. like the minutes of council meeting like this was the issue so he put together a task force that studied it for a year i was actually an intern at the time with the city and i helped set up the tables and chairs for these meetings um and they <laughs> and it you know people came angry at the city cuz they said you know i live in a in a ruin field now you know, what are you, what's mm. the city going to do about this? And they were rightfully angry and they wanted the city to do something. Um, and the city put out this report at the end of that, um, at the end of that process. And then the thousand houses program came out of like that report and the report even doesn't quite pick up on it. Um, it mentions the foreclosures and how bad they were. And I, I link, I, I have to give that report credit because I used the images from it on how, where the foreclosures were focused and where the vacant houses, like they did a great job identifying these things, but it even mm. didn't spend too much time talking about why this happened. It, it mentions the decline in, in manufacturing. Um, it mentions, you know, the fact that the city lost 30,000 people, but it never mentions the fact that almost like 80% of that 30,000 is because households are smaller. Like it, it, I don't know if, mm. I don't know if it just didn't quite matter to them. Cause they're like, well, the problem's here. Like they, they do a good job explaining the housing crisis and how it became a critical issue. Um, but they fall back. Even that report falls back into like, oh, it's because they lost 30,000 households or 30,000 people when like, okay, but in in 2000, we had lost 25,000 and it wasn't nearly this bad. Um, like this was something yeah, that happened so- in the 2000s that I think it was just hard for people to wrap their heads around like how bad it was. Yeah, and I think it's interesting thinking about all of the conversation. And I know we don't want to get like too deep down this rabbit hole, but all the conversation around that during the campaign in the last year, understandably, it's a little hard to, um, if you weren't here when it was really bad and there were all of these vacant and abandoned homes, it's understandably hard to understand why it was yeah, I don't, needed yeah. and why it like at such a speed and scale. But I, I do think... It, uh, that like, I think part of the maybe like misunderstanding there was like the campaign was kind of put in this, uh, framework of, you know, South Bend died because of Studebaker closing. South Bend's doing better now Mm -hmm. in the wake of Pete's tenure. And like, this was one of those things. And so I think it like it in people's minds was like maybe too closely tied to the decline 50 years ago yeah i think because it's an easy story to tell right like yeah like, totally. look at the big factory that used to employ twenty five thousand people in the 20s now it's mm-hmm. gone you know look at all look at images of south bend you know it, it's a very easy story to tell and i'm not saying that story's wrong 
I, I want to get that out there. Like, I'm not saying that deindustrialization was a good thing or anything. Like, it was really bad. People lost their jobs. Right. Like, it was bad. But what what we talked about last time too is like deindustrialization and the loss of a lot of these jobs. Not all of them. South Bend still has like seven thousand manufacturing jobs, so it's still way more than like the an average American city today. Um, but that was bad. But we'll, that stopped South Bend from growing. And it stopped St. Joe County, a lot of St. Joe County's growth. But what made South Bend shrink was the fact that the people who remained and a lot of people remained, like, again, St. Joe County has more people than ever, decided they no longer wanted to live in South Bend. So, like, Mm. if deindustrialization happens, but suburbanization doesn't happen, like, I think South Bend stagnates. But because they happened at the same time, it's easy to confuse the two. And it's easy to, you know, just say it's all Studebaker's fault and it's all Bendix's fault, you know. Um, And it was easy for Pete's campaign to tell that story because, like, you're a presidential campaign. People actually don't really care about South Bend. (laughs) Like, you know, the average person in (laughs) Iowa, like, maybe, you know, thought there was a story. Like, they want to know what this young mayor did to think he can run for president. And from a psychological perspective, of course, Studebaker closing was just terrible for the city like we're talking about it now Mm -hmm. 55 years later like Mm -hmm. you know you can't get away from it because it was such a psychological blow um and they you know that it's a blow south bend was kind of actually ahead of its time you know chrysler went actually went bankrupt in the 80s and there's actually a great documentary about like looking back on studebaker from that was made in the 80s like oh studebaker was kind of like in south bend were kind of the like forebringers of what would happen to our midwest communities in the 80s and 90s Mm -hmm. and 2000s where like deindustrialization hit everywhere else um i guess maybe we're lucky maybe we got it over with sooner um (laughs) but i but yeah you know it, it it also the campaign was was at a disadvantage and i don't say that from a supporter or not but just like one of the main issues facing the United States pre-pandemic, which has kind of been pushed to the sidelines, but it's still definitely an issue, is the the cost of housing is really expensive mm-hmm. in a lot of places that aren't the Midwest. So the South, the you know the, the East Coast, the West Coast, housing's not cheap, um, and it's more expensive than it was 20, 30 years ago. But in, yeah, so someone who lives in you know Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, where where gentrification actually is an issue that should be, you know, thought of. I think sometimes it's overblown, but it is an issue that is happening and needs to be addressed. Someone who's experiencing that, and then they see, oh, this guy knocked down a bunch of houses in poor neighborhoods. Well, that clearly yeah. must have been because he wanted to gentrify the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. When yeah. it's like, go to these neighborhoods today, they're not gentrified. You know, they're there for one. I I think I remember even at in that time on Twitter asking, like, would one reporter show me where like these census tracts that lost these people like have now more white people like, no, they still have less white people than, than they did in 2010 because like everyone's moving out. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, of course, no one's able to show you that because like this wasn't the case of gentrification like um, Jason Segedy, who we've mentioned a few times, who's a planner in Akron says like gentrification is displacement by housing getting too expensive. What happened in South Bend and Akron and Gary and Detroit was displacement through decline where the Mm -hmm. places were Mm -hmm. so 
you couldn't live in them anymore because they had no value to a bank. And that's in the end what kind of matters if you're trying to get a mortgage. Unfortunately, that's just the way the United States works. Um, and that's a really hard thing to understand to somebody. So it's easy to say set Studebaker closed, factories closed, people left. When that's that's really not what happened. I, th- I think the other thing that's interesting about this decade, which is a little bit different than what we've talked about before, and you mentioned is like, you know, the 60s through the 90s, those four decades, like most of the population declined, really driven by household size decreasing. Yes. And, you know, and you talked in the first post about like how that kind of more or less affected a lot of South Bend the same, right? As opposed to the 2000s, which you have a chart in here about, you know, population loss in two census tracts. So both uh, census tract six and 21, which are both on kind of the west side of South Bend. Um, huge losses within the track in terms of the number of people. So both lost close to 35% of the people in those tracks. But when you add up the numbers in terms of loss of population, I'm just looking at your charts here, I did a quick math, and it's like those two tracks accounted for 26% of all of the loss in all of South Bend. Yeah. You we know, have like so 30 all census of a, tracks. So like these yeah. two. So all of a sudden you get, I think that's the other thing that's like when it shows up in this conversation about a thousand homes in a thousand days and, and some of the political discussions we're having today is like all of a sudden this was very concentrated and started to see these like knock-on effects of things that you touched on like that got the ball rolling 40 years ago like redlining you know where where the the policy and some of those things happened 40 years ago but as these things have all these knock-on effects you know it's not until 2010 that you see this like very clear thing show up where it's like this is not affecting everybody equally anymore yeah um and then that makes the discussion much different than the kind of decline that you saw for the past 40 years yeah i mean Hmm. if i should have done it that now that you mentioned i should have put the vacant like the vacant abandoned task force put out an a picture of where all the vacant abandoned property is and it's on the article i should have put the redlining map right next to it and they they like match up you know, obviously there's a couple random, oh, wow. you know, they, I, I should yeah. have done that now I think about it. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not, it's not a hundred percent, but it's like, oh yeah, clearly, you know, this happened. And I think, like I said, redlining and shady mortgage practices against African-Americans and a mm. lot of those like racist structures we had talked about in previous articles that, that trapped African-Americans in South Bend in these like five neighborhoods, basically, they are the that all that set the stage for this terrible collapse because it it made that housing worth very little but it was always still worth enough to have a functional ish market where there were you know most of the homes were occupied you know the rent was you you could buy you could get a mortgage for a lot of these houses back then so it but it was at the very limit nick it was i i used the phrase like it was on the edge and that the housing crash pushed it over the edge. And that that's why, okay, you had 50, 60, 70 years of these neighborhoods being disinvested in and not paid attention to by the city, unfortunately, a lot of times. And banks, you know, only doing minimal loans. And, you know, African-Americans having lower incomes because of, you know, racist uh, policies. 
that all set the stage for then, okay, what if you have a housing crash, which had never happened before in the United mm-hmm. States history up until this point? Like, what if you have a real estate crash? Well, the stuff on the edge is what's going to suffer the worst. Not the stuff, you know, it was bad for Florida for like two years. And it was bad for Las Vegas for like two years because they had really gone gangbusters and building new housing. Like, yeah, for a couple of years, they had a lot of vacant housing that they built. But it all turned around because people want to live in Florida and Nevada. But like not many people are moving to the west side of South Bend. Um, And that's when you have this housing crash. Well, the market just never came back. Yeah. Mm. It's, and it's interesting too, because I know we had a conversation in the last article about <clears throat> some of these things, especially around suburbanization and, you know, how the population loss due to suburbanization was almost entirely white. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that actually the, the minority communities grew in South Bend in those times. But I think it's so interesting because of, you know, when people talk about like these structural things, um, not only structural in the sense of like r- the way redlining was structural, but these f- like compounding effects that, you know, create the situations we're talking now with like such inequity. And you, it's, it's actually, you can't point to one thing that caused it. It's like this, you know, long, long history of compounding things that gets you to the point where you have such issues in some of these neighborhoods. Definitely. I mean, um, that I, it's just so when you look at it that way, you just like understand the gravity of trying to reverse some of these things is yeah, like, they're big projects. Yeah, and we'll see in the 2020 census what happened more to these neighborhoods. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm always going to be optimistic, but I don't, you know, we're not going to see huge population gains in those census tracts. Um, hopefully we'll see more stabilization where there, if there is a decline, it's 5%, not. 35 percent um but we don't we won't know um we've you know looking at the self-response rates you know some tracks are are, are are surprising us and it's like oh wow like this is doing really well like i think where we'll see if we do see growth in south bend like some of it will become from there's downtown housing now and there's new housing you know downtown that people are building but where i think you might see some growth is places like river park which if you look at the foreclosure map had a lot of foreclosures because it was, it wasn't quite as, as on the edge as a lot of these West side neighborhoods, but it was the next step a little, you know, further off the edge um, where the housing crisis really hurt. And, but the houses still had enough value that they did sit for a couple of years, but they were eventually rehabbed and eventually lived in again um because we don't you don't see the you know thousand house a thousand days didn't tear down a lot of houses in river park because eventually the vacant housing was filled again and i think 2010 was just probably really the worst year and so the census captured that where i think you might see some growth in places like river park simply because a lot of these homes had been abandoned but never torn down and now they have people living in them again um so, but we'll see. We'll, I, I will definitely do in this. We'll, we'll get South Bend's numbers in the spring. Um, and eventually we'll get track data and then we'll, there'll be an article. I, I presume about, you know, what the 2020 census tells us. Um, but yeah, you're, you're, yeah, we ought to, we ought to take that 
the map you were talking about, like the kind of putting the redlining map on top of this like vacant uh, and abandoned housing map and um, like added as a revision. Yeah, I think you're right. I think. I definitely. And then we added as a revision and then we could send it out tomorrow. If we add it as a revision in the next couple of days, then we could send it out on social media as its own post as well. Yeah, no, that's a really good. I think it, you know, I, I, I'm trying my best to to explain to like at the same time that a lot of this comes from racist structural you know problems that that the United right. States as a whole contributed in, and South Bend was 100% a part of that. But it's it's been hard because it's there's there's things that are racist. Anyway, like it's trying to tease out well was this racist or was this just really bad policy? And you know, I anytime I can highlight you know yeah like here we had redlining um which specifically targeted african-american neighborhoods first and then it right. targeted okay neighborhoods like rum village which were considered yellow because they were poor how poor white people um you know we saw a ton of foreclosures in rum village um you know but we didn't mm. see them in sunny mead as much like there was like 20 compared to like 500 um, in other neighborhoods, because like that was a green neighborhood from the 30s on, like that was a neighborhood that banks were okayed to give mortgages for. Yeah. Um, and man, so many white people just gave up on South Bend. Yeah, like that's, that's what I, I kind of like that thing that Dustin was talking about, about like even in the, the changes in demographics, like it's astounding, it really and really kind of. Yeah, really depressing. Yeah, I almost included it again in this article, but with the 2000 to 2010 year added on, but I had, was up like mm. seven charts and I'm like, okay, I, I think people like <laughs> eventually you just start glazing over them, right? We see so many. You just, you need to create like another post that is just for all the chart lovers. The Super I could have, I could have used more charts um, for sure. Oh yeah. Like a downloadable charts uh, <laughs> folder. Yeah. We should put all the charts the series has produced on like one post and just, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We uh we should make like a <laughs> we should make like a like a one pager on this that like makes the argument very clearly and plainly and uh, read- people can sign yeah. up for us to mail it to them uh so that they can like keep it on their coffee table or something yeah. for when like, they need to, like their their grandpa's saying some making some ridiculous <laughs> argument about South Bend you can like whip out the the document That's not, someone printed it out like the whole thing this article <laughs> and showed it to me. I'm like, I haven't actually seen it in physical form ever. <laughs> like it was, yeah, I was like, Oh, this is my baby. And you've just like printed it. And like, it looks it's... great printed out too. And I was like, Oh, he's like, yeah, I read everything, you know, in, in paper. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> this could make a great coffee table book. Yeah. You know, oh, all the yeah, man. Um, we're, uh, we're headed there, <laughs> but I, I did want to say, so we talked about the, like the racial breakdown chart. That was even the case in 2000. Like hmm. it was only white people who left every still like they were, it was minimal increases for Hispanic and African-American and Asian and, and native American. I think it's how it's pulled out in the chart. Um, but they all still kind of grew like a little bit. It was purely again, white households leaving. And I think what you were seeing in the two thousands was, you know, African-Americans were leaving like the near Northwest and the near West side and they were moving to maybe the south side or, or further out west um and they were taking the homes of white people who then were either leaving the county because the job market was so bad or leaving for the suburbs um so you know 
you still had the situation where there were still like African-Americans weren't really leaving the city, but they were leaving these neighborhoods um, and they were mm-hmm. then moving into homes where the white people were trying to get out of, you know, you know, Erskine down on the south side, you know, stuff like that, where it had been largely yeah. white up until the 2000s and then they left the city too. Hmm. Interesting. I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's, it's so funny. I uh, I know a family that lives in Granger that moved off of Fellows in this exact time uh, in that neighborhood you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it was. It's still today in this in this area. Um, we still have a very big suburban push. One thing, smaller metros like ours have to fight that places like even now like Indianapolis. Well, they're a little. T- um, places like LA, I guess, and New York and Boston, like the big four or 5 million Metro compared to our like 300,000 people. Um, one thing we have to fight is you can go 20 minutes and you're in farmland that can easily be made into cul-de-sacs mm-hmm. very cheaply yeah. where, and you can still get to your job anywhere in the Metro within like, you know, tip. I think someone told me once like 50 to 60 minutes is like the limit. People will commute one way beyond that mm. it like really breaks down so you can in an hour you can get almost anywhere like in the you know the mm-hmm. four or five counties so because our population's small and the city is small in that regards like suburbanization can happen for a very very long time but in areas like new york they they reach their limit where like you can't get to manhattan you know on in a car in less than an hour like it's built all the way that whole hour out where now they yeah. they they have that's why they have affordability issues that we don't because it it pays to be closer to the jobs and the action. Or in South Bend, it's like yeah, you can go live in Granger and you're still on a good drive 20, 25 minutes from downtown. Um, right. right. And we have to we have to South Bend has to contend with that in a way other cities now don't. Yeah, it, it's an interesting segue too to you know part you wrote about here that we've actually been kind of separating for the last few posts, which is like the difference between kind of population changes and economic changes. Um, But I found this like poverty stats, um, especially compared to the County uh, fascinating because like I had never thought about, I guess I had always considered population decline and economic decline, like very tied, if not the same thing. So when I thought about, the poverty rates in South Bend, I kind of always thought about them as like natural economic decline. And between the suburbanization stats and some of these other statistics, it, it, it's clear that at least part of the median income problem in South Bend, when I say problem, I mean that it's decreasing and that more people are living under the poverty line, like as a percentage of our total population it's clear that part of that just has to be from the fact that some of the upper parts of our income distribution just aren't in that population anymore. Like they're still in the County, but they're not in the city anymore. And so as you pull that part of the distribution out, you know, the whole average starts to shift downwards without really any substantial change in the actual underlying economy. Yeah. Um, And we were joking. Yeah. That that points to mayor Allen's, exactly right about that like the people who can afford to are are gonna leave or are leaving we were we were joking before we started recording about like it's like a form of it's like a weird form of gerrymandering almost um you know where in 
Say it. Say it. Economic gerrymandering. <laughs> there you go. Because when you think about it in the political sphere, like it's it's kind of a similar thing where it's like you have the same people, but you're like just drawing different boundaries to get different basically outcomes. And in this case, it's it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a similar kind of dynamic where you you as a county, like you've been saying, Joe, you actually have growth. Um, and so essentially like kind of the same population, but if you just shift where they are and where they fall in terms of these um, kind of civic boundaries, you can really, really drastically change what some of these economic statistics look like, even if the actual economy hasn't changed that much. Yeah. And I, um, which is like really fascinating. Yeah. You, you're hitting on the head. So like basically St. Joe County is one economic, you know, entity now, like, there's really little difference between South Bend and Mishawaka when it comes to like, if I live in South Bend, I can easily work in Mishawaka and vice versa. Um, you know, it's, it's one job. You just got to be careful there. We're not getting into these like regional <laughs> Michiana. Kind yeah. Of I, things. no, no, no. I, I'm, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm not trying to say that. What I'm, what I'm saying is like, depending on like, it's all still kind of South Bend, I guess is, is what I'm saying is it's, there you um, go. <laughs> you know, South Bend's like the basin. Like yeah, everything so, kind of still feeds. And this is this kind of talks about at the end of the piece, I do dive into the median income. And so in 1960, basically the average median income in South Bend and the average median income in St. Joe County are exactly the same. South Bend's actually a tiny bit higher, which you'd never think of. But by 2010, and it's been kind of a steady fall every decade, now it's only... South Bend has the average or the median income was 74% that of the St. Joe County. And mm. you're exactly right. Dustin, we were saying like, it's probably a lot of the same families, a lot of the same people. It's just what, you know, if, if you had 10 people and two of them leave, well, the whole average falls if they were the two wealthiest, even though they just moved right outside the boundary. Um, what is, what what happens with cities though is those boundaries they're imaginary lines on the map that have huge consequences because of that wealth is taxed in some way shape or form either in how you, how expensive your house is or your your you know your your job income and where your wealth comes from is how you pay for everything you know how you pay for your road how you pay for the fact that you have a sewer system and a water system to keep up. And if the richest 25 to 30% of your households over 50 years leave, even though they're still very much part of South Bend is, you know, in a general term, like they usually still work in South Bend. They usually still, you know, send their kids to, if they send their kids to private schools, they're sometimes in South Bend, but they're, if they're not, if that wealth isn't being, isn't helping contribute to taxes. You have really negative consequences where the it's, it's the, like we have a, we have something and this is just the, the term for it. We have something called a progressive tax system in the United States where the more money you make, the larger percentage of it gets taxed. That's just a fact. It's called a progressive tax system because it progresses as you go up. What, what cities have become is almost a regressive tax system where the poorest area pays for the majority of things that everyone enjoys and the wealthiest areas only pay for things that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mentioned this, I think in the next piece kind of gets into it 
where like South Bend provides just a lot of things everyone in St. Joe County uses or has the ability to use. That ranges from like we have IUSB, which is this huge chunk of really good land with that doesn't get taxed because it's a government entity. Um, we have all the courts here. We have, you know, Howard Park. We have the South Bend Cubs. And in a, in a lot of different ways, the city of South Bend subsidizes those things to exist. Like IUSB doesn't pay property taxes. So uh, basically South Bend subsidizes them to a degree. Um, mm. So South Bend provides all these things. Like we have the county jail. We have, you know, infamously the homeless centers in South Bend. Again, yeah. none of those things pay taxes. So they're on land that the city's basically picking up that road around it because, you know, we've decided that these entities shouldn't have to pay taxes. But yeah. South Bend is the poorest place in the county. The, the, you know, the poorest people on average live in South Bend and we're the ones fronting these bills that everybody in the county uses. And this, I'm kind of like taking Mishawaka out of it a little bit because Mishawaka is to a city and like Mishawaka has things I enjoy. So like they have a really nice river walk that I go run on occasionally. Like there are some things I use in Mishawaka and I don't contribute taxes, but like it goes vice versa. Like Mishawakans obviously use a lot of South Bend stuff, but in the unincorporated land, it's just houses. Like that's it. There's, there's very few jobs. There's very few restaurants if they have trails or anything, it makes no sense for me to drive 40 minutes into Granger to go run on their trail. That's along like for a road. Like, why would I do that <laughs> when I have a river, a beautiful river right here that they drive down here to run on? Like it's, it's just for them. And like that, that sounds really mean or whatever, but like, it's just literally a fact that the stuff in Granger and I'm picking on Granger because like, it's the only place you can pick on because it has a name. <laughs> like the census yeah they may it's like their own fault like you just uh if you were like these other people that live in all these other suburbs around south bend and just didn't give themselves a name yeah they all have the name south bend because they're close to a south bend post office but granger was this teeny tiny post office that b because they were closest to a granger post office they're called granger and what the census does in these cases is granger's official title as an entity is a census designated place yeah, like that is the name. It's not a. <laughs> I love. It's that. not a town. Mm -hmm. It's it, you know it has no elected leaders. It has no budget. It's just unincorporated land that is clearly a thing. So they gave it literally a census designated name, so they can. Yeah, track if it. you Google it, it says that, and then it like designates its proximity to two other townships. Yeah, as like this is where it yeah, is. It's Harris Township. I think is kind of almost basically Harris Township is granger kind of um and it's its own and it's in the penn harris madison school district which is to anyone listening who's outside of our area the best school system in northern indiana probably per stats yeah. if you want to look at purely like test scores and the stuff we judge these on you can argue that shouldn't be how we judge schools and i i kind of agree with that but like if you that's purely like real estate is dictated by schools a lot so like there's a bunch of wealth there that a lot of that wealth comes from gener economic generation in South Bend and in, in, in Mishawaka too, and in Notre Dame. So like the cent, the center of the, this County. Um, 
and that wealth is kind of extracted because the person works that job, you know, and works hard, I'm sure, and like deserves their pay. But then they they leave the area and they dump that wealth into their home, which the only thing that home really has to pay for is a great school district. And it becomes this virtuous cycle where a good school district means expensive homes, which mm-hmm. means this person gets wealthier because his home is worth more. And then when he finally sells it, when he's like 70, he makes it even more money. Like it's this virtuous cycle of wealth generation. But well, the- And it's a cycle within <clears throat> the school system, right? Because it's like people want to be where the good schools are, you know, and the good schools are funded, like the, the schools are funded by property taxes. And so like, once that cycle starts, it just keeps feeding people going towards where yeah, those good schools and are and, and it just separates more and more. And it even further pushes South Bend population down because it Granger takes families, right? It's the Granger has a per population household that's 0.5 higher than South Bend. So South Bend's is about 2.5 to 2.6. Granger's is like three because people who live out there are families typically. You know, when the kids move away, they leave and they're replaced with another family. So part of like, like we've talked about ad nauseum, a lot of South Bend's decline is because our households are smaller. Well, a lot of the big households aren't in South Bend, even though that person might move back to South Bend or, you know, closer to South Bend when is when their kids graduate because they don't need to be in Penn Harris Madison anymore. Hmm. And it, I, I'm not, you know, people have to make decisions for their, for their own lives. And like, I, I, you know, but they're, and I, I'm not trying to criticize someone's like, if they, I have, I'm a dad. I love my kids. Like I would do anything for them. I I totally get that perspective, but you can't, you can have that perspective and understand that like, I'm doing this for my kids. And I think this is the best for my family while still admitting that the structure is inherently broken. And I, yeah, absolutely. and I think and people take it and, and oh, go ahead. Well, I was just say, I, I mean, I know many people, including myself, who will make the argument that uh, sending your kid to a uh, South Bend school might have some non, uh, some benefits that can't be measured yeah. by the uh <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't show up on a test state. score, but it's yeah. still important. I, I, I am also... I think that that's true. Um, And I'm someone who went to private schools my entire life. And so now I'm Mm. thinking about that tenure. I have a tiny different perspective slightly because I went to Arley of Hungry School from kindergarten, eighth grade. And it was a school that was, you know, I was, you know, it was not a traditional like private Catholic school. It was a very, you know, poor school. Right. So I slightly have, I don't, you know, but then I went to Marion High School, which is, which was a very wealthy all white school. Um, so I, I totally, the education thing, like I, I agree there was things I probably missed out on cause I didn't go to a more diverse school. Um, but I think it, this whole point and this whole talking about this, it, it's not because like I live in South Bend and I think it's unfair and I, I think, Oh, that's lame. Or like, you know, it's because there, there are real consequences to these things. And I think in the end, it makes the entire county worse. Everybody living in South Bend, I think, has a worse existence. Or I'm sorry, living in St. Joe County has a worse existence because these negative cycles of decline and pulling wealth out of the place that the wealth is created 
and all these other things we've talked about are happening. I, it makes South Bend a harder place to live and it makes, it has all these, like Dustin has talked about the, all these consequences that have compounded. And I don't think just because you don't live in South Bend and you live out in Granger or anywhere else in the County in the unincorporated area, I don't think your life is better than it would be if South Bend just didn't have those issues because everyone was in one city again, like we were in 1940 and 1930. Mm. Or, you know, them and the farmers. Yeah, and and I think think anybody who would argue with that has to contend with the fact that people in Granger and people kind of surrounding South Bend still like largely stay quite attuned to what's happening in South Bend and at least express um, concern or, you know, I mean, obviously like sometimes I complain about that on Twitter, people expressing their concern in the, like in the voice of the people uh, in the Tribune from Granger. But if, if what you're saying isn't true, what you're saying is that, people in the county would have a better existence if South Bend was a stronger place. And if like some of these weird um, kind of made up boundaries in the way we fund schools and things like that um, weren't that way, then why, why do you guys all care yeah, it's, about what's happening? It's kind of like they want, and I, again, it's, there are great people who live in all these places. Like I'm not picking on any person. Obviously there are specific people who, who probably exemplify this. <laughs> um, it's not they want the kids kind of like having your cake and eat it too. like they don't want to have to pay South Bend taxes. They don't want to have to live near populations that they claim are unsafe or that they think are negative. Um, they don't want to have to send their kids to diverse schools, uh, diverse both in race and in income. You know, they don't want to do that, but they still every time, anytime there's a shooting, anytime there is a, you know, job closures or there's anything negative that happens in the city of South Bend. They're the first ones to tell you why that happened. And it's always because South Bend did X South Bend didn't do Y. Like it's always South Bend's fault when it's like, well, how much could South Bend do if all the wealthy people in South Bend started to leave? And then we said, Hey, maybe let's not do that let's annex you. So we're still all part of the same pot. And then they sued us to keep us from annexing them. And then we said, okay, mm-hmm. well you'll leave, you know, go out to incorporated areas. And then a global financial crisis hit the first of its time where the South where the in the United States where housing crisis plummeted. And so because we had inexpensive housing, that's like a good, like cheap housing is a nice thing where you don't have to spend half your income on your house. We got punished again because all those host houses became unlivable. Like how much of that's South Bend's fault? Like clearly some cities found ways to get around it. And like South Bend did better than a lot of other cities. But if you're going to tell me like it's all South Bend's fault, it's like, well, if you work in South Bend, that means that your income is in part because South Bend exists, but you choose not to live here and take your wealth elsewhere which again is your, you know, American right to do so, but then don't say that has no consequences. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in the wake of this article, Jason in Akron had tweeted this incredible stat that I don't know that I'm going to get it perfect, but I think it was around 
80% of the people who are working $40,000 or more jobs uh, in the city of Akron do not live in the city of Akron. Yeah. And I'm sh- Was that about, that was, was about 80%. Right. Yeah. And, and he, I actually reached out to him and was like, Hey, where'd you find that? And they had like a study done to, you know, by a firm that kind of did a bunch of market studies of res residents and stuff. And that was one of the stats he remembers and then, you know, yeah. pulled out and, and that's, I'm sure it's very similar to South Bend. Um, here's kind of a right. preview of the next article. 72% of everybody who works in South Bend doesn't live in South Bend. Wealthy or not wealthy. <laughs> Like 72%. Yeah. Like, so, you know, if South Bend gets a brand new factory and there's 500 new people working there, well, only th- one out of every four of those even lives in South Bend on average. Yeah. Um, and it's probably, you know, I will see if I can pull out the data, but it's probably very much like Akron, where if you're making on the higher end of the spectrum, you definitely don't live. It's, you know, it's 80% chance you don't live in the city. And at some right. point, like that has to be reckoned with in a way that's like it has to be explained. And if the explanation is, well, rich people just don't want to live near poor people, like just let's own up to that, that we live in that kind of place. And, right. I mean, that right. Like that is pretty much like that is one of the big driving factors. Yeah. There, and right? I'm, again, I'm and, trying to. Uh, I'm trying to be careful and say like, there's, there's a lot of reasons people do what they do. And I'm not trying to pigeonhole anybody saying like, you're, you're a right. really bad person. Cause you just wanted a nice house. Like some people just really want a big house and they work really hard. And like, that's okay. I don't really blame the person. I blame the system that has let this wealth escape and that there's no recourse for the city to, to do anything like in some Indianapolis is seeing this issue. Right. So, Indy, interestingly enough, like fused with its county because it saw this happening. And this was a Republican led Richard Luger idea to Unigov, where the entire Mm -hmm. Marion County became the city of Indianapolis because they saw this very same issue happening where the wealth was growing further and further away and it was going into these suburbs. They didn't combine their school districts, but they combined their city um, (laughs) so they could capture that wealth. And it's Indy is a pretty good city today like it has a lot of issues like south bend has but like you can say it worked they can't but what they've seen happen is the suburbs just kept going farther to get out and now you have <laughs> carmel and fishers and a bunch of other right. suburbs even further away and those people drive 40 50 60 minutes mm-hmm. into downtown indy and into indy to work and don't contribute taxes at all at least in our case Granger and our suburbs mostly pay county tax, like property taxes, which pays at least for like the health department and some stuff that we share. But in these mm. cases, like Marion County doesn't get a dime from that, that these people live in Carmel and like Carmel right. could not exist if it was not for Indy. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah. 100%. Like that only and exists it is, because it, Indy exists. Right. It is hard to this question of like you were saying, I don't blame the individual. It's hard to kind of know where to put lines there because I understand, right? Yeah. Some of this, like there are changing attitude. There were changing attitudes of like, we want a big yard. We want a big house, you know? Uh, And some of it is like, clearly, yeah, I don't want to live in a neighborhood with these kind of people. It makes me also think about like another uh, kind of response that we've gotten to some of these articles yeah, are the people who 
are dismayed about the state of their old neighborhood. And Joe, you and I have talked about um, some of these comments, uh, people who I think we had one person specifically this last time say like my grandpa built this house for his family and like, it's so sad to go back and see that it's not there anymore. And it's kind of like, well, you know, your grandpa would be, might be sad that it's not there, but he also, he might be even more sad that you let that happen. And so it, it is a hard, like I think in some of these cases to, obviously it's hard to make like a blanket statement that like, there's like a lot of personal responsibility here, but there, there is in some cases, right? Yeah. There's, I think part of it is people like ignorance is not a defense against breaking the law. Right. Famously like ignorance of the law is not a defense, Mm -hmm. but in the same case, like ignorance still is a thing of like just not knowing. And I think some people think they live in South Bend and they don't because they have a South Bend address Mm. with five digits. And then it comes, they think their whole time that they're living in South Bend because a lot of times they're even on city water and sewer that they pay for. And then it comes time for elections and they can't vote and they get really mad. Um, So part of it's like, there are some confusing (laughs) natures to it where like, granted, if you're buying a couple hundred thousand dollar product, you should know where and what exactly it is. Um, but some people just, you know, they just don't know. And like, that's part of it. But I, I think I'll even read that comment you're talking about. Cause I found it and I'll leave out the name, but she said, um, thank you for this article. I grew up in the fifties and sixties on one of those streets from the pictures you posted breaks my heart to see the three houses on Harrison that my great grandfather built for his family no longer exists. And that was it period. And you're exactly right. We're like, so this woman who clearly grew up in the 50s and 60s like her great grandpa was probably from the 1800s built homes probably that he thought was a great investment in his family's history or like his in his family's future Hmm. and that those homes were then abandoned by that family at some point like they moved at some point Hmm. and you're exactly right like at some point part of that falls back on the original occupants um, you know, it's, it's, it might not have been her decision to move. Maybe her, when she was five, her family moved, you know, or 10, like, you know, who knows? Um, we had another one where two people went back and forth reminiscing on the neighborhood that they grew up in and how great it was. Like they said mm-hmm. that like 12 times, like this was such a great place to live. And all I see when I read that is like, well, why did you, if it was so great, why did you move? And like you left and you know, all the other people left. Well, like, why are you surprised that the neighborhood isn't the same as it used to be? Did you think you would leave and like everything would stay exactly the same? Yeah. There's this, um, sense and sometimes explicit disappointment in the current residents that they didn't keep it up. That or... They haven't kept it as the same that it was or like, uh, yeah. And they didn't support, the business is enough for them to stay open and the bakery and everything. And yeah, it does kind of beg the question to those guys. Like, yeah. I mean, do you think like you can just leave and uh, it's everybody else's job then to uh, keep up this neighborhood? Yeah. It's, it's. I think something for me, like coming out of this article, which I think is something that's like been building though, is like, I think there is that individual decision, but uh, we keep saying like, you have to recognize the system that's happening too. And I think that's like, what is the scariest part about this whole thing for me is 
it seems so delicate to knock some of these systems into negative feedback loops. Like it seems like it takes very little energy to knock them into a loop where everybody's personal incentive is the exact opposite of what's good for like the city at large. And it seems so hard to take it the other way mm-hmm. and like create systems and incentive where it's a positive feedback loop where the mm. individual incentive feeds into the city being better. Yeah, and, I think- and that, you know, and, and that's like what's terrifying to me is like, it's how you get into this spot where everybody goes like on an individual level, this is the best decision for me and my family. And then, then it's like, okay, well, where, where does that leave? Like, and you have a little bit of both, but you're also thinking about like from a policy perspective or just from like an economic system, like we, we have something that it's like so easy for that to turn into these negative feedback yeah. loops that you just you can't course correct unless you put a whole bunch of energy back into the system. Yeah, something from yeah. the outside almost has to come in to change the dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll see if that, you know, if, if those things exist at some point. Um, one thing this, the, 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 the pieces are kind of dancing around that I hope to address is like, what is a city? Mm-hmm. you know mm. let's define that okay is it a geographical space that never changes is it people like is like legally a cor- like the south bend is a corporation made up of a hundred thousand people who live in its boundaries according to the state constitution of, of indiana we're a class two city you know because of our size hmm. um the only class one city is Indy. They always up it whenever Fort Wayne gets close. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like in a very legal entity. See, that could be a great incentive. Imagine we had like city population wars. <laughs> Who could become the biggest? Um, like in that sense, like a city is purely its residence. It's not. It's, really? That's how they define it is a corporation of people. Yeah, it's, it's the corporation of this, like when South Bend sues somebody or somebody sues South Bend. It is the residents of South Bend as a corporation who have elected through like just picking a guy who got or a a woman who get the most votes of the corporation to represent us. And then they hire people, you know, you know, that's how that's legally what the city is. And it can hold assets and it can do all these things because it's a corporation of people. That's awesome. Um, I'm pretty sure like a lawyer can probably say I'm maybe fuzzing it, but like that's basically what our city is it's a corporation of a hundred thousand people who live in North Indiana in these limits. But like intuitively that's missing something too. Like a city is also it's geography, a city like the St. Joe river is part of South Bend. Like it's an integral part of South Bend, you know, our downtown and our, our famous structures, like, you know, the typical new place is part of South Bend. Like, that's why historic preservation became so important when we started knocking the stuff down because like, Hey, no, this is part of our history. Like the buildings matter too. And also a, a city is where people work and live. And like the work part of that is what has because of the automobile. Like we want to talk about like how this system's even possible. It's because the automobile made it possible because pre 1930, like the streetcars kind of started it but like at the time like the city had to go with it like you couldn't just put a streetcar out to nowhere um you had to be able to walk where you worked so you lived and worked in close proximity and so it was mm-hmm. never a question of 
where do you live? Do you live in the city or not? You know, if you worked in the city, you probably lived in the city. And if you didn't, you probably worked on a farm. And the only few people who could do both were the super, 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 super wealthy who still had a house in both. And they would say they lived like in the city, like they owned Studebaker. That's why they built, you know, too big new place. But they probably had like a country house like for the summer. But the automobile, the car changed that where like you could get to the city and then leave it. And then it became a much more transactional thing. It was no longer the city is where I live all the time, where I work all the time. Like I'm 100% less. I go on vacation, like in the city. It became like the city's just where I work and then I leave and then I work and then I leave. And like I actually live, even though I spend most of my hours awake in the city, I live outside of it. And that's what makes yeah. all these other systems possible. Do you think it's really interesting hearing you talk about the automobile that way and how it made it possible. And especially now with the pandemic happening and, you know, how people see the internet as this kind of other game changer in your relationship with like place and work. It does make me wonder is like, is this an opportunity to flip the script where like the automobile allows the work to happen in the city, but you can live anywhere. Um, is there a chance at least for some sectors for that to flip where it's like the city is about where you live, not where you work. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that's as an urbanist who's, who believes, I believe in cities. Like I think they're net good things. I, I hope that's a consequence of this. Maybe like there are some things that like you can never work from home, like a restaurant, right? you know, or even a factory that builds stuff or a, warehouse that moves goods like those are going to have physical manifestations always um i guess unless amazon gets like a billion drones i don't know um but it'll be interesting because then it's i can live wherever if i can work from home if i'm you know lucky enough to be one of those people so where do i choose to live it you know you can't say it's because of work or anything like it'll be interesting i i think for some superstar cities like new york they'll bounce back pretty quick. I think LA Seattle, despite what the news wants to tell you, like these are super in demand places still like, cause everyone knows like the pandemic won't last forever, but it has opened the Pandora's box of work from home for a lot of people. Mm. But even then, like I personally think like as someone who likes to go out of my house and do things, if I, if I'm going to be home eight to five working on my, computer i want to be able to then just walk outside and go to a park go to a restaurant go to a store mm -hmm. go see the river i don't want to have to get in my car and drive 40 minutes to do those things personally other people might disagree but like that's me joe what yeah. do you uh what do you walk to most often uh the farmer's market's big um my wife and i really like the winery um that's iron hand yeah you guys are so close yeah we're you know it's, it's great like we have kids so it doesn't always work out to walk to winery um we walk to the parks like that's probably like yeah i take my dog and my kids to potawatomi park once a week mm -hmm. easy and then mm -hmm. to the river you know the other basically law it's a linear park basically um once they're probably one year away from us like doing bike rides out to like howard park and stuff which will be a lot of fun mm. um there's a lot of really good restaurants close by actually you can walk to like genie's um pitts barbecue 
yeah, it's Sunnymead's pretty well positioned that it's it's a walkable neighborhood that's contained, but that is very close to, to like down. like when I go for a run, I like run to Leaper Park. I do like a loop. So. Yeah, man, being able to walk to Genie's breakfast, that would be, <laughs> yeah, that'd be a yeah. good. This was gonna be like be a good my setup. daughter's Fish three. Walker. And I can't wait like to take her when she's like four or five and we like sit at the counter together and like I mm-hmm. I have grand <laughs> images of good father daughter time. <laughs> I don't know why, like at a counter. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah. I wonder I know you've talked a lot a little bit, uh, Joe, but do you want to preview kind of what's coming next? You, that's kind of how you end this particular post was kind of giving a, a sure. path forward as you wrapped up kind of the decades yeah. you were going to talk about it's so like the series is kind of like like jake really helped me like focus it like how did south bend lose fifty thousand people in 50 years is like the point of the series in the end like that's the overall thesis and like that story's kind of been told at a very skeleton level like we did the neighborhoods like we kind of looked at all the different types of neighborhoods we and then we did a very traditional like history from 1960 to 2010. But like, I don't think we've gotten quite to like why this matters yet. So that's kind of maybe where the next few posts go. Um, the very first one, so the next article will be purely dedicated to jobs and like how jobs impact the city. Pure, only because like we get that comment it's it was born out of comments from people saying you're not talking about jobs enough like that's the big issue all the other stuff i was talking about they were saying i was like nibbling on the edges so i was like okay i'm gonna yeah. devote a whole article to it and see like do i actually and exactly not what those comments want to hear <laughs> no like i'm gonna take them for their word and like basically the article ha- will have two main points like what i call myths like they're gonna say myth one the city lost population because of lost jobs and myth two, the city lost population because it lost good paying jobs and both of those obviously i call them myths so i don't think they're true like i think there's a lot more <laughs> to it um and i it's very data heavy unfortunately just like this one's gonna be so lots of charts again so doesn't like fortunately it. fortunately um, sometimes i think the data like people eventually just start glazing over it um but it's going to break down how South Bend is still the main job center for the county. And most people who work here don't live here. So adding a bunch of jobs doesn't necessarily mean you're adding any population is like kind of the answer to the first one. And then the second part is South Bend on average has better paying jobs than the county as a whole. And that, and then has better paying jobs on average than Mishawaka, which has seen population growth. And I'm not like picking on Michelle, like they've seen growth over the 60 years, but we have better paying jobs still. So clearly you can't just say it's because the good manufacturing jobs are gone because we actually still have 7,000 manufacturing jobs and like 12% of all jobs in the city are still manufacturing jobs compared to 8% in the country. So we still have like a pretty good manufacturing base here. So we have all these, like, Mm. there's all these stats that will be given to show, like, if it was just those two things, like jobs and that good jobs are gone, it's just, then it doesn't explain it at all. Like, it doesn't explain why we lost all this population, because South Bend still has a lot of the jobs, and it still has a lot of good paying jobs. The problem is, it does the the city good to have a good paying job, because, like, the property taxes from it and the economic development comes from it. But if the person doesn't live here, your population, it doesn't help your population. 
So that'll be the next article. Which definitely it, like feels like another piece in the question of why this all matters is because like, especially from the, from the county government perspective, like so much of the way that people think about getting back to something, uh, whatever we're trying to get back to, uh, or moving forward is through the lens of jobs and that, Oh, we just need jobs. We just need, or we need better jobs. And, uh, yeah, there's, but that, if that's not, if that's not actually true, then we're wasting yeah. our time. And I, I'm in no way saying the city shouldn't try to grow jobs. Like, of course, like you need jobs too, but it has to be in tandem with living, which is where I think people don't, they just stop at the jobs. Like if there were a ton of jobs in South Bend, there'd be a ton of people. Well, there are a ton of jobs in South Bend. The people just don't live. Yeah. I think people, yeah, I think that stat about how many people work in South Bend and, and don't live here is really interesting because I think most people, if you were to do like a blind test of people, I think most people would be almost maybe the opposite, uh, thinking if one in four people who, um, work in South Bend also live in South Bend. I think most people might think it was the opposite that it was one in four people who live in South Bend live outside of South. Yeah. I mean, I'll kind of end it with like my favorite stat. I think I've have ever found through the research of this article. And I actually knew it before this article was the census did this amazing thing that they called commuter adjusted population, which looks at what, who, how many people are actually in your city on a random day. Not who live there, but like how many people are in the boundaries on like Tuesday. And this was obviously pre-pandemic. And like we have to put that on everything now. Like things may change slightly. Um, And they haven't done it. They did it for the 2010 census. And like South Bend's population was 123,000, which is 21, no, 22,000 more people than who lived here, quote unquote. Hmm. Mishawaka's went up like three or 4,000 too. Um, so basically what that means is every day the city actually has 123,000 people in it, doing things, living in it or existing in it, I guess I should say working in it. And then at night it shrinks by 20,000 people as everyone leaves. Mm. And that even includes the South Bend people who are coming back from Mishawaka or Elkhart or wherever they were working. So it's like, it's really 30 or 40,000 people come into the city every day and leave the city yeah and i, I guess I, like, that's why everybody that's why everybody hosts their events at like five yeah the people <laughs> so are they can like I, I mean i've heard so many people like give that exact reasons like well there's a lot of people that that one that if you don't get them at five then they're yeah. gone you got a 40 minute um, drive home and if like i wish i could take a photo of state road 23 which for those <laughs> listening outside of like there like it's the main road to get out to granger which we've been talking about and like it's the exact in the morning, all the like 85% of the traffic's going into town and in the evening, it's all going out of town and like the city yeah. limits don't actually go that far Northeast. So like all those people don't live in South Bend. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That'll be the next Man, well, I'm, all about jobs. I'm ex- Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Same here. And then after that, but we'll see what else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about does it for this episode. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Dustin. Yeah. And thanks to everyone reading and listening. Um, if I'm making you mad 
or make you uncomfortable, please reach out. <laughs> I still like to hear that. Um, and I've, I'll, I'll mention right before we leave, like I, I met up with a guy who kind of disagreed with me and, and we've kind of become friends over it. So it's, it's, I can be getting some of this wrong. I totally admit that. Mm-hmm.